Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Roberto Strongman. He's the author of Queering Black Atlantic Religions, Transcorporeality in Candomblé, Santeria, and Vodou, published this year by Duke University Press. Strongman asks us to approach the book like we approach an encounter with spirituality. The writing both informs and performs. It's an intriguing way to enter the worlds of Black Atlantic religious practices and to understand the ways they undermine and subvert heteronormative norms and expectations. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Roberto. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Yeah, thank you, Alejandra. Thanks for inviting me to to your program. And um, yeah, so I'm I'm excited about being being able to share my ideas in this new medium. And uh, that's that's one of the interesting things about the writing process, being able to reflect on what one has written. So, so your interview um, format helped me to to look back on that on that writing process and um, gain some some perspective. That's great um, because what my first question is actually um, so. About about asking you to think about the origins of the of the book project, right? So, <clears throat> you suggest that we need to think very differently about Black Atlantic religions than uh, the ways that we have been thinking about them. And so, we, before we sort of launch into the whole substance of that argument and and what you mean by that, I, I wonder if you can talk about what made you want to write a book like this. Yes. Well, uh, I think that. Um the the question presupposes that i was the one in search of this knowledge but i have been feeling more and more over the years that the topic knocked at my door the topic of transpossession in black atlantic religions wanted to be written about and it found me as an interlocutor and um, that uh, that encounter that I had with this topic began something like 20 years ago when I was in graduate school and where, where um, I was focusing on Caribbean studies <clears throat> and I was developing my comparative expertise. And it, hap- it, uh, it happened in the context of a literature department and a Marxist one at that, where people had a, something of a, an allergic reaction to anything that had to do with religion, which was, of course, the opiate of the masses in Marxist language. So I had to do quite a bit of explaining and convincing crafting a dissertation that had nothing to do with a topic that I was most passionate about, having to finish that project from a literature perspective in order to return to my first love, which was this particular topic. So there were, I would say, some perambulations around the topic, but... but um, but having been hired in a black studies department then gave me the platform to be able to elaborate this very comparatist and very interdisciplinary topic with a greater degree of freedom than when I was a graduate student. So one of the things I found 
really fascinating um, happens right at the beginning of the book. And the introduction sets up the way you want readers to approach the book. You call it an igbodu. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that properly. Um, and you suggest that reading and entering a spiritual space are parallel acts. Maybe they're not exactly the same, but they are similar. So can you talk about what that means and how how do you want readers to read your book? Perhaps because I come from a literature background, perhaps because I see the spiritual as more than just an intellectual exercise, but uh, as um, um, a world outlook that permeates everything I do. I really wanted to present the book as an as an offering, um, both to the unseen and to an academic audience. And I wanted to present something that had elements of the sacred, not just in its content, but also in its format. I wanted to invite readers into the book in a way that mirrors the entrance of the neophytes as they are being initiated into these religions. Um, and, and in addition to creating a, a foyer, uh, uh, an antechamber to the material in the book through these through this introduction, which functions as a kind of initiatory chamber. I wanted to to really interrogate what initiation really is all about. And this is not something that I go into in the book, but which through the therapeutic orality of the interview, I can unpack in a freer way. Um, my field, or in, and the field of Black Atlantic religions, and I and, and I would say the study of religions, it, it, you know, in in our um, as it has been elaborate, elaborated, um, it really in, in in involves a great deal of claims to authenticity. So oftentimes in the my process of presenting the book, I have been asked whether I have been initiated into this religion. And I haven't formally been initiated into them. But even though I have have had many opportunities to do so, and one of the reasons why I haven't done so is because I I felt really called, both in my intellectual practice as well as in my spiritual practice, to foment a deep reanalysis of what initiation really is all about. Um, I see it as a lifelong process. I see it as a symbolic manifestation of something that's already a heartfelt condition and an experience. And if it's all of those things, then I, I am able to, through the means of writing, through the book, to foment that kind of initiation 
to the readers of the book. So I am through through this in through this introduction, I am bringing in the readers to this world by sharing with them privileged information that might give them a sense of what it's like to be part of a community of belief and of practice and of sharing. So to cite your title, what does it mean to queer Black Atlantic religions? Yeah, yeah, great, great, great question. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, queering is something that is attached to titles of so many works. Um, I can I can remember back in my graduate school days, one of the books that made the, one of um, the, uh, a, a big impact in me was Queering the Renaissance. Um, and perhaps that phraseology was in my mind as I was coming up with the title. But I think that queering has at least a dual meaning. And the first is to study the the lives, the identities, and the practices of the non-heteronormative, so that which lies outside of a prescriptive, reproductive, heteropatriarchal man and woman pairing. So there is so that would be a descriptive sort of um, meaning to 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 queering. It, it would be something of a hermeneutic exercise to bring out that that non heteronormative element which is oftentimes on the margins and recenter it. Uh, and then the second meaning of queering would involve perhaps in a playful way perverting that which is central, that which has been established through a queer interpretation that may not necessarily presuppose a, that a, that a, that a non heteronormative subject or for example a gay or a lesbian uh, individual is being the subject of the study but that through a queer lens we might be able to deconstruct and denaturalize a formation that is seen ordinarily as solid and as impermeable. And I think that I'm doing both of those, that I'm performing both of those meanings of queering in the book. Because on the one hand, I am very concerned with the lives and the practices and the identities of non-heteronormative subjects within these religions. But I am also using a queer lens and a perspective to read objects that are not necessarily created by queer people, but 
through that queer lens, I'm able to bring about a greater understanding of art, novels, ethnography, and various other means of cultural production that that wouldn't necessarily be able to be exposed in the same way um, if it were not for this queer perspective, this queer. It seems like um, this demands a very kind of mixed methodology. So I, I paid attention to to your methods. And um, if we go back to sort of academy <laughs> talk, um, and you do sort of some literary criticism, some media analysis, some criticism of the critics, some, his, some history, some ethnography. Uh, and so I was wondering, why does this subject demand this kind of method? And um, how, how did you manage to hold all of those in your head at once is really <laughs> the question. Yeah, thank you for, um, for um, the opportunity to make that understandable to, to myself. Uh, I see myself as a cultural studies critic. And <clears throat> most of us who identify uh, as heirs of that methodology are very much in the process of trying to understand what does that mean? How is it that we we were uh, crafted as scholars of such an, an eclectic methodology? Um, so um, I think that there are many avenues to enter into um, into a cultural studies methodology, such as the one that I employ. Um, there is, a, you know, many come from the angle of sociology because of the Birmingham School of Cultural Studies that was, um, you know, of which the most important figure would be Stuart Hall. And I entered it through literature. So I feel that the, that the grounding that I had in what we refer to as the close reading, that hermeneutic exercise of excavating subtext and bringing it from underlying representation to a surface representation is something that I learned really well. And having, to a certain degree, exhausted my expertise in literature, I began to adapt that hermeneutical process of the close reading of that process of excavating and making manifest that which is hidden, that which is subtextual to other areas of cultural production. So that while on the surface, it looks like I am examining a myriad forms of um, of expression, ethnography, paintings, photographs, novels. At its core, I think that the methodology is a very singular and a very tight one at that because what I'm doing is 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 that. Uh, exercising a close reading 
of a variety of cultural manifestations that can be read like texts. So these um, these uh, examples, the the cultural manifestations, um, uh, they're so rich and there's so many in this book. I'm wondering if there's one that prompted for you this kind of mode of analysis. Do you have a favorite one or was there one that was really particularly difficult to tackle? Oh, yes. So I would say that um, definitely the most fun the most transcendental, and I think the one that most clearly expresses mm, this idea of transcorporeality would be found in the paintings by Wilfredo Lamb. Um, I feel I feel really satisfied in that I was that that I was able to decode Lamb uh, to break the code in essence. I, I, I feel that he really left us um, a message in a codified way um, that spoke to the African religions that so permeated his upbringing, but, bec- uh, but which, uh, of which he couldn't really speak during his lifetime uh, without it um, gravely endangering his status as a... As a surrealist as a cubist and that um now it's the time to to bring that message that he in some way sealed but um but left the key for someone to open that vault um and um so i i i would say that yeah that the that the paintings of wifredo lamb were those that um, I think most captured my imagination um, for this project. So um, the book stretches across um, region, right? So you talk about Brazil and Haiti and Cuba, and I want to get to that in just a minute. But I also want to talk about one concept that, that keeps coming up over and over again and kinds of holds a lot of the book together, which is transcorporeality. Uh, can you talk about what that is? Yes. Yes. So transcorporeality, as I'm explaining it in the book, is a conceptualization of the body that is unique to African diaspora cultural production and that stands in something of a contestatory relationship to the Cartesian self of Western European philosophy. So while in Western European philosophy, we have a conceptualization of the body stemming from the work of René Descartes in which the immaterial aspects of the self, the soul, if you will, is enclosed within a body in a hermetic relationship, meaning that it's sealed within the solidity of the body. The African diasporic conceptualization of the body that I'm calling transcorporeal 
involves a very different formation. Rather than being enclosed within a sealed body, the immaterial aspects of the self stand in an external relationship to that corporeal self, meaning that the soul or the anima is is on top of the body, which is functions more like a saddle, functions more like um, transport vehicle for that immateriality. And that immateriality, in addition to being external, it's multiple and it is removable so that divine animas, divine souls, spirits, can in the phenomenon and the occurrence of transpossession displace that external self and occupy for brief periods that body. And that is that experience that of ecstasy that is sought after and promoted in these religions, that dislodging of the human psyche from the body and replacing it with the spirits of divinities and and so that so that transcorporeality would imply as i am as i'm using it this very different formation that um that involves an external removable and multiple immaterial psyche in relationship to um to the body so this seems to be something that the religions that you're looking at share, but I wonder um, in terms of, and there's lots of um, overlap and crossing over kind of spatially, but I'm wondering how much the national context matters in any of the stories that you tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Um, I think that I was trying to, in, um, to provide something of a post-national analysis. And that's something that the comparatist approach almost demands. And uh, spanning both sides of the Atlantic um, and looking at, at religious practices that have origins in Cuba in Haiti and in Brazil and in their respective diasporas in first world metropolises to a certain extent implies a disengaging from these national formations. But you're you're applying pressure on the nation. It's a I think it's an important intervention. Um and I think that 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 um 
you know, many, and, and I address this in the parts of the book when I discuss creolization. Because for many Cubans, for example, Santeria is a Cuban religion and its African origins might be alluded to, but in a nationalistic way, these African religions end up being Cubanized. And so I wanted to provide an alternative vision to the to a very Cubanized form, uh, rearticulation of these religions by showing that while there might be an element of the national in, in Cuban Santeria, for example, there are important transatlantic connections to the religion of the Yoruba people in West Africa, and that there are new rearticulations of these religions as they make uh, subsequent jumps to places like New York or Madrid, for example. So that I think that that um, there are many, many, many books out there that study Santeria as a Cuban religion, that study voodoo within the context of Haiti and study Candomblé as a kind of folkloric Brazilian religion. But, and and while I see value in that, I wanted to do something different, and and um, and that and that involved making these connections that that um, might have made at times seem these religions as unmoored from flags and emblems of the the of the patriotic and the nationalist. So one of the things that you point out several times, and it, it becomes really clear with regards to the kind of cultural products that you analyze, is that there's a real, there seems to be an accepting and, a, and an embrace of non-heteronormative relationships and practices. And this goes against some of the things we know about, frankly, about homophobia in Caribbean societies. So how, how did you arrive at that? And, and what was the process by which you started to say, look, oh, look the, these, these things are kind of rewriting this, this history as we know it? Yes, yes. So, so these, these religions stand um, uh, in, a, in a contestatory relationship to the nation state. I mean, they are... Um, the clearest continuations of African cultural life in the new world. And <clears throat> while these, the, the, the independent nations in the Western Hemisphere uh, have modeled themselves on European institutions, and yet these religions are African through and through, even even though they may have a thin veneer of Roman Catholicism. Um, they are the Yoruba religion of West Africa. They are the continuation of the religion of the Ewe Fon people. And and so the the values 
inherent in those African cultures is still very much uh, central. And so that, so that while places like Haiti or Cuba <clears throat> in, their, in their civil society might be invested in notions of patriarchy and and a nationhood that is modeled on these patriarchal ideas. The African religions that have been preserved, some of the African religions that have that have been preserved in places like Cuba are much more heterogeneous and have a greater degree of acceptance of people who don't subscribe to um, notions of ethno nation nation and heteropatriarch so that so that yes so, so it, it this is, this is something that, that that will definitely stand out to any visitor to a santeria ceremony in Cuba that while there might be an element of homophobia in the larger society these religions function as havens for uh, these sexual identifications and practices that may not find so so much of a welcome in um, in the larger society. Now, I I do want to say that that. Um, that the religions that I chose to study are those African religions that are friendlier to non-heteronormative practices and identifications. There are others that aren't so friendly. For example, Cuba has two main African religions. One of those is Santeria, the one that I study. One that I didn't study is Palamonte, which doesn't come from West Africa like Santeria does. It comes from Central Africa. That one is very, very patriarchal. And so there have been some studies out there that I allude to in the book um, that uh, would seem to suggest that Santeria is also in a dyadic, in a dialogic relationship with Palomonte, meaning that that there is a kind of a kind of marriage, a kind of uh, truce that sort of understands that um, that Palomonte is the patriarchal religion, and that therefore then Santeria in this in um, in a counterpunctual relationship, then is it is it's feminine, but feminine in a metaphorical sense, implying that the feminine uh, um, has aspects of openness and receptivity and receptacularity, which have strong parallels to this idea of the transcorporeal, and 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 that and that opens up spaces for women, and also for men who are read as passive in the sexual act so that because of their metaphorical openness they stand as the epitome 
of the receptacular body, of the transcorporeal body, which can stand as an open vessel for the immaterial aspects of the self that may ride it in a quasi-sexual way during the phenomenon of transpossession. So the other concept that underlies the book is transcripturality. Um, Can you talk about that concept and tell us why it's important in the book? Yeah, so I um, that concept is uh, spelled out and elaborated in the conclusion of the book, but there are intimations throughout the whole book that that's where the narrative is going to. And I think that that is um, um, this implies a kind of revelation that the relationship that I am discussing between the body and the psyche throughout the entire book are going to have some important textual implications. And I began to notice that as I was writing the book, I was being affected personally and as a scholar by the very topic that I was um, writing about. I was writing about trans. And the more I kept rereading my own work, the more I kept hearing other voices speaking to me through the work that I had presumably written myself. And so that what was strictly discussed in the book as a bodily formation and as a bodily relationship between the the body, the human body, and its psyche, then started to become more like the body of the text. And the psyches in the zeitgeist or the immaterial making its way in a plurivocalic way into the text. So that that by the time the book ends, I am calling for authors to carefully monitor and review their work with a keen ear to the possibility that we are all multiple and that projects look for us more than we look for them, that we may not be as scholars necessarily the fountain spring and originators of new ideas, but that we may be in that receptacular way, in that transcorporeal way, the vehicles of discourses that want to be manifested in this realm we call reality. And this is not just a call for greater attention and attentiveness to the ways in which 
form and function make their way in works about trans possession. But I am very interested in scientists writing on, um, I don't know, biology, astronomy, to become attentive to the ways in which they may be channeling ideas and concepts, that they may be taking dictation and merely transcribing ideas that might be quite literally floating around. Um, and I think that that is in the spirit, so that that transcripturality is in the spirit of the transcorporeal. It is, it is its greater revelation. It is, um, and, and it is a call to look beyond the rational. I mean, we are in, in, uh, in institutions of learning that privilege the rational over the emotive and the intuitive. And I know in my heart of hearts that my calling and my place in the academy is to bring a greater degree of integration of all scholars, students, professors. And my this call for attentiveness to the ways in which we may be channels of the spirits of knowledge is one way for me to foment that kind of integration, that kind of wholesomeness to our work. There's a lot to think about there. And I have to admit that, that, that um, it really shifts the way one thinks about one's work um, in so many ways. And I guess to end a little bit where we began um, in the way that you want readers to approach the book, I'm wondering um, if you want people to read every book like they read your book. Is that something we can do not just for your book, but, but for, for lots of different books? Yeah, uh, well, I think that every topic uh, uh, has within itself the theories for its own understanding, and that and that every topic can can give us ideas as to how to best interpret it so that um so that i i i think that if 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 there's any any counsel that the book can give in terms of methodologies would be to first find the topic and make the methodology secondary and subsidiary to the topic of analysis i think that um and, and oftentimes we have it backwards. We are we are trained in particular disciplines, and then when we find the topic, we enslave the topic to the methodology that has been given to us. And I think that that is a violence to the topic. 
I think that um, what 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 I would like for my for my exercise to do in the larger work of the academy would be to to make methodology secondary to allow the topic to reveal to us the ways in which it wants to be studied. And then to have some sort of space of self-reflection within that work, to be able to bring form and function in, in a symbiotic relationship, bring about that kind of unity of, of, of narrative and of effect. Roberto, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. <laughs> yes, and thank you so much for uh, for the opportunity to to reflect upon upon my own work and um, for the opportunity to be able to um, to discuss it um, in this interview format, which uh, for me has been very 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 therapeutic. <laughs> 